Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each and every week I have the joyful pleasure of interviewing a uh, rabbinic scholar about the Torah portion, the parasha, the weekly section of the five books of Moses that will be chanted and read in the synagogues throughout the Jewish world. We'll try and unpack some of the more challenging aspects of the portion and see how it might connect to those of us who live a faithful religious life. This week's Torah portion is known as Tazria. It begins in the third book of the Torah, Leviticus 12 through Leviticus 13. Let me give you an overview of the parasha before I introduce our guest. The parasha of Tazria continues the discussion of laws of Tuma Vitahara, laws of ritual purity and impurity. It begins by telling us that a woman giving birth should undergo a process of purification, which includes immersing in a mikvah, a naturally gathered pool of water, and bringing offerings to the holy temple. It then continues to tell us that a male infant are, is to be circumcised on the eighth day of life. Taz Arat, often mistranslated both from the Hebrew, the Greek, and other languages as leprosy, is really a supernatural plague, which can afflict people as well as garments or homes. If a white or pink patch appears on a person's skin, dark red or green in garments, a high priest, a Kohen, is summoned. Judging by various signs, such as an increased size in the afflicted area after a seven-day quarantine, the Kohen pronounces it Tameh, impure, or Tahur, pure. A person afflicted with Tazarat must dwell alone outside of the camp, although this might apply to the city as well, until he or she is healed. The afflicted area in a garment or home must be removed. And if the plague, tazarat, reoccurs, the entire garment or home must be destroyed. Unlike many aspects of the Torah, this is not a narrative portion that many of us are familiar with. It doesn't offer some of the more well-known stories of Torah. With me this morning is Rabbi Mark Levin, uh, who now lives in uh, Kansas City. He was a founding rabbi of Beth Torah in July of 2014 and continued uh, through, uh, he was declared founding rabbi in 2014, completing his uh, rabbinate at that synagogue, which began in 1988. So almost 20, almost 30 years as a rabbi and founder of that congregation. He has a uh, doctor of uh, 
Hebrew letters and an honorary doctorate of divinity. He is well known as a scholar and as a uh, communicator between various faiths. Uh, Rabbi Levin, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Well, thank you for that very generous introduction, and it's a, a pleasure, a pleasure to be here. Well, I think you deserve the generous introduction in as much as you've lived in Kansas City your entire rabbinic career, I think. That is true. Um, and anyone who can uh, found a congregation and serve a congregation for nearly 30 years is certainly a hero. <laughs> um, I'll take it so, on advisement. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this very challenging portion which, as I indicated, often begins with uh, people thinking we're speaking about the disease of leprosy. Um, That's the way it was translated from the original Torah into the Greek. And leprosy, of course, uh, would be what today we call Hansen's disease. But do you think that's what this is about? No, it clearly is not what it's about. The whole process of the book of Leviticus, which is, after all, the priestly book, the book of the Levites or the book of the of the priests or Kohenim. So what we have from the very beginning of the book, it, it starts out in the first five chapters, really the first seven chapters, you deal with all of the sacrifices. Now, why the sacrifices? It's a matter of how does one live a holy life? How does one live a life of attachment to the divine, to that which is ultimate in life? Lahakriv is the Hebrew word for to sacrifice. It also is the Hebrew word for how to draw, for drawing close. So in the biblical imagination, when you sacrifice, which is give back to God, a gift that God has given you, an animal or or something else that sustains life, when you give back to God, you draw close to the divine. And so we go from the beginning of the sacrifices, we go to various other subjects, and here we have the subject of health. We all know, even in our own lives, that health draws us close or perhaps pushes us away from the feeling of of, uh, connecting to the divine, connection to God. And here we have the priests. They are holy people. They operate the holy system. The priests who are dealing with this problem of being alienated from God because of the condition of the body. And what does that have to do with ritual cleanliness, ritual holiness, or ritual impurity? So... How is it, I want to continue this conversation of holiness, but how is it that over the course of nearly um, fifteen or 1,600 years, this uh, parasha became confused with notions of uh, physical health as opposed to spiritual disqualification? You know, I have to say that that it the, the separation that you're making uh, is is sort of a modern separation between physical and and spiritual. We we tend to classify things that way, but perhaps it's 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 not true and it's certainly not true in the biblical world. That which occurs to us physically also is happening to us spiritually as a matter of fact in the book of Deuteronomy, it will be an indication of our spiritual uh wherewithal of our of our spiritual wellness. Uh I have had friends who have felt that uh, and, and I'm certain that you have as well in terms of members of the congregation who have felt that their physical discomfiture was an indication that they that God had distanced himself from him. Indeed, in the in the Bible, in the 
uh, again, in, in Deuteronomy, but in other places, you'll see that God turns his face away. And that's, that's, that's what we experience, right? When we, when we feel that we, we have illness or other uh, bad events in life, uh, God has turned his face away from us. And the opposite of that in Numbers chapter uh, six, for instance, the priestly benediction, may God turn his face towards you. And that's a feeling of blessing. So the spiritual, the physical, and the Bible are very much connected. Great. So having explained that to our listeners, one last uh, pursuit about this week's parasha, and that is if we uh, understand this uh, two chapters of the book of Leviticus as helping us ha- come closer, lahakriv, to come closer to God and understand what it means to be holy, why is the notion of the woman and birth inserted here? Right, so it seems like an outlier of, to some degree. If we had started with laws of ritual purity and impurity and skipped down to much more comprehensive conversation about Tazria, great. We might understand that a bit more clearly. But here we seem to have this... Um, uh, intersection um, that doesn't belong in the parasha. Yes, and, and I, I think that there is, in fact, a, a spiritual basis for this that is also psychological. Um, all of us know that there are certain things in life which we feel have power. And in the Bible, the, the symbol for that is blood. Blood contains life itself, and life is, a on the one hand, sacred, which is all life is to be preserved. And on the other hand, and it seems anomalous, but it's not, that blood also contaminates. So you have at the same time, one and the same time, that which uh, is the symbol of life and all all life is not only to be preserved, but, but you stay away from death. So for instance, in the dietary laws, which were in last week's Torah portion, we do not consume blood. Jews do not consume Traditionally, Jews do not consume the blood of an animal. Even if you eat an animal that's kosher, you you do not consume the blood. Why? Because it's life, and life is precious to us. Life is, in fact, holy. So, so here just, you have to, just to remind our listeners that uh, f- meat, which initially is forbidden in the Torah, is right. then allowed once it has been uh, properly sacrificed to God, which we now call ritual slaughter. And uh, animals that are ritually slaughtered um, have blood drained from them as uh, a matter of course and are salted in order to take even the last remnants of blood from the animal uh, before it is consumed and facetiously, it's, it is rare for traditional Jews to eat rarely cooked uh, right. um, meat in as much as rare is uh, signified blo- by blood that has not been burned. So, and here, just to continue that theme of blood, here, as you well, well point out, at the beginning of chapter 12 of the book of Leviticus, you have a woman who is giving birth. Well, what is she giving birth to? A new life. That's precious. But at the same time, there is the presence of an abundance of blood. And so that contaminates. 
So at the very same time as life is present, new life, which is a blessing. And and as you said, the male child is brought into the covenant by circumcision, which is another. It's the it circumcision is a covenant of blood. At the same time as that the woman gives birth to life, she also becomes uh, contaminated by the blood, and therefore has to both bring a sin sacrifice uh, and wait a period of time until she can be restored to a perfect relationship with God, which is the decontamination or the pro- the process of purification. So it seems to be anomalous to us, but if you think about it, we also get extremely nervous, right, about the presence of blood or the intersection of life and death. And so here we have, I think, a biblical an, uh, analysis and, and uh, a rec- um, recognition of the fact that this is a perilous moment in which we stand on the brink between life and death. And certainly for the biblical author, that was perhaps more obvious than it is today when, uh, for the biblical author, uh, childbirth took place in homes and uh, surrounded by family and not secluded in hospital or birthing centers. Um, And so they were very uh, conversant with the delicate balance between bringing in a new life and the possibility that life could be quickly exterminated and eliminated, either the child or the birthing mother. Precisely. Uh, So as you began your conversation and led us through this discussion, um, is the book of Leviticus all about this notion of coming closer to God? or is yeah. it something more complex? I, I believe it, it is about becoming closer to God. And and uh, it, we will see in chapter 19, uh, just a couple of parashiot, uh, Torah portions away, the very beginning of, of chapter 19, which is part of the holiness code. We say, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is called in classical religious studies, imitatio dei, where you are imitating God. So God is holy, therefore human beings, or the Jewish people, should be holy. Now, there's a series of, of, of uh, activities there. So offering sacrifices is part of it, but also social justice, right? How you treat the poor is a matter of how, how holy you are. And the whole idea of the Torah, but particularly of the book of Leviticus, is how does one enact holiness in our lives? How do we preserve the holiness in our lives, which I define as closeness to God? The more holy, the more access you have to God. So how do we preserve that holiness in our lives or create that holiness in our lives in order to live a life which is attached to God? That's the whole theme of the book of Leviticus. We begin with sacrifices, but we also go to other kinds of prayers. We also go to the food that we eat. We also go to illnesses. Uh, We go to social interactions. We go to all kinds of things because all of life reflects our our. Uh, capacity to be in contact with God, to live a holy life. And the text seems to be quite uh, clear that holiness emerges um, through the uh, ritualized and ethical behaviors that have been established by the text. That holiness moves uh, beyond simple faith, as it's expressed in the text, is right, that again, a, a fair reading of it? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and again, you're dealing with a modern distinction 
right? But, but uh, because all life has the potential to be holy in the in the Western world, in particular since the Enlightenment, we have this bifurcation between a civil life and a religious life, uh, particularly among liberals. But there's no such distinction in the Bible. All life has the potential to be holy, or the opposite. Uh, to be to be impure, and therefore you want to stay away as much as possible from the impure. And if you arrive at the impure, you want to restore yourself to a position of holiness or purity before God. But again, it, it involves every aspect of life. And you'll see in Leviticus 19, where it says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. There is no distinction. Uh, honor your father and your mother comes right along with and keep the Sabbath day in the very same verse. So having kind of um, unpacked this nature of uh, unholiness or uh, tahor and tameh, the Hebrew terms that establish this binary relationship between a status of holiness and a status of uh, unholiness, the Torah portion uh, leads us, as we indicated in our chat before we began this morning's conversation, to a uh, prophetic reading, which seems to expand on this notion. So for those who may not be aware, not only is a selection of Torah read each week, but a selection from one of the books of prophets, uh, both the prophets that are named and the early books of the prophet, which are sometimes called historical books, is assigned to that weekly reading. And uh, the assignment is done in accordance with ancient understandings of similarity of themes or similarities of content. The Haftarah is what it's called. The concluding reading comes from. Uh, Second Kings this week. And um, Rabbi Levin thought that there would be of great interest to us um, to connect the two um, and how that uh, section of Second Kings speaks of holiness. So why don't you help our listeners by giving them a brief summary of this week's Haftarah? Very nice. So thank you so much. So uh, we have a general by the name of uh, Naaman, who was a Syrian general, general, and therefore, I mean, he's a military person. He's an advisor to the king of Syria. Uh, Naaman is spelled with an ayin, the Hebrew letter ayin, uh, which is silent, but spelled with an aleph, which is also silent, so therefore pronounced the same way. It means faithful. So we have the 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 story here of a general who is who is a Gentile, and you want to ask yourself the question: Why is he called by the name that may mean? That he's faithful. Well, he none, despite the fact that that uh, he is a Syrian general, he seems to have this disease, which we know it can't be leprosy. He wouldn't be able to have his job if it were Hansen's disease. So uh, he does have some sort of a skin affliction, and he wants to get it cured. Uh, his wife's maid uh, is a captive, an Israelite captive, and she says, "You know, if you go to see the prophet um, in uh, Samaria." Meaning Elisha, he'll be he might be able to cure you. So uh, with a recommendation from his own king, he goes to the king of Israel, uh, and the king of Israel says, "What do you take me for God? I can't do anything for you." Well, Elisha the prophet hears about this uh, and says, "Come to me, I'll take care of it." So 
uh, the general, Naaman, goes and uh, Elisha confronts him and says, you know, all you need to do is go down to the Jordan River. Well, uh, Naaman is expecting waving of hands, formulas, uh, all kinds of superstitious stuff. And, and he is taken aback and discomfited, as a matter of fact, by the idea that all he has to do is, is uh, go and bathe. And he says, oh, we, have, we have rivers at home. I'm not going to go do this. But nonetheless, his servants say, listen, you came all this way. You know, you, you, you brought all this fortune to be able to pay for this. All the guy said to you was, go bathe in the river. So go bathe in the river. See what it works. So he goes and he bathes in the river seven times, which is the instruction from Elisha. And in fact, he is cured. Now, what's the point of the story? He becomes a faithful servant to God. And he says, when I return, I will never offer a sacrifice to any other God. He's been sacrificing his whole year, his whole life to the gods of Syria. Uh, but he says, listen, okay, I am now convinced the God of Israel is the God of all the world. Here we have a story, therefore, that says, if you're faithful to God, makes no difference what you call yourself. Makes no difference if you're a Gentile. Make, okay, Faithfulness to God is chosenness. And therefore, Naaman becomes one, so to speak, a faithful person who is faithful to God, but he also says, listen, my job is I got to help out the Syrian king. He's going to go into the temple. I'm his assistant. He's going to expect me to bow. So in such circumstances, I got to bow too. And Elisha says, fine, you're, you're, you're good, as long as you're faithful to God. And that's the story. Sara'at, this so-called leprosy, okay, removes you or is an indication of being removed from God. But faithfulness in God Okay, and doing what God requires restores you to the relationship that is holy, regardless of your nation of origin. Right. So that's what's quite unusual here. We have this um, Torah portion, which seems to be very particularistic. It's about the Israelites in the desert. It's about the Israelites uh, learning about their sacrificial cultic obligations to uh, Adonai, to their God. And then the Haftarah uh, introduces us to a story not of an Israelite, but of this uh, Syrian general. Um, is the intention here um, in the book of Second uh, Kings to introduce us to a more universalistic notion of deity? I believe that it, that it is, um, but to say, as other books do, for instance, Ezekiel says this, um, that, that God is the God of all the world. So the people go to exile in Babylonia, and Ezekiel preaches to them and says, listen, when you come back, the God who's here with you is going to be back and he's going to restore. And you'll see in the second part of Isaiah that this is a God who is the God for all peoples. My house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. I think it's also significant that Abraham is introduced to God by Melchizedek, uh, a, uh, uh, a priest of the God, um, a, a foreign God, not uh, yud heh vav -Hey, but but who recognizes that there is a God and introduces Abraham. Okay, in, again, in Genesis chapter 14 and 15, and Moses is introduced to God at the mountain of God in Exodus chapter 3 by his father-in-law, Jethro, his father-in-law. So we have several instances in which non-Jews introduce major uh, people in the, in the Jewish religion to the God of all the world. This is a universal God. 
but it does seem that while the Torah and the subsequent books of the Jewish canon speak of universality, this week's Torah portion seems not to speak of universality, but of particularism. When you give birth to a child uh, and you are made impure by childbirth, this is the way you uh, make yourself holy. And should you have a male child, that child will enter into the covenant through uh, a covenant of blood, which seems very particularistic. Um, and so I'm wondering whether the Haftarah reflects some sort of um, progression of thinking with regard to the Israelite uh, concept of divine in the world. You know, it very well may. Uh, there's an interesting question in the development of the theologies that you find in the Bible as as to, you know, it wasn't at one time more particularistic. But I must tell you that my own belief here, because I just quoted from Genesis and from Exodus earlier books, is that there is an embedded idea here of a particularist God who chooses Israel, why? To be a light to the nations. It, I, I see that throughout the Bible. The mission of Israel is to bring the whole world to God. So I see a particularist relationship which in fact has universalist implications. The universalist implications are not that Israel is better than the other nations, but they are the means by which God reaches the other nations to, to say to the other nations, I want all of you to have the same relationship with me that I have with Israel. I have it with Israel because I declared to Israel, you are my people. But it's not Israel exclusively. And it's not the responsibility of Israel to think of themselves as being superior. It's the opposite. Israel has the responsibility, the obligation to be this light to the nations. It will say the same relationship that we have, God wants for everyone to have. No one is particularly special. God wants a relationship with all the nations and all the individuals. So following up on your wonderful analysis of this, it appears that the biblical narrative allows for non-Israelites to apprehend the presence of God in the universe. But later, rabbinic Judaism speaks much more to the belief of um, accepting God through conversion um, and, is, and postulates that as a juxtaposition to the more universal notion of the Torah. Is that a fair summation of what you're saying? I think it is, but also you have to look, since you brought in rabbinics, uh, if, if you look at a close analysis of the rabbinic tradition about conversion, there are indeed people who say uh, that in order to do this, you have to accept yourself as being among the, quote, chosen people and do all the commandments. But there's a very strong stream in Judaism that says all you have to do is say that I want to do what God asks of me, and therefore you are part of, the, of, of this chosen concept. So that says that the, exactly what I read here uh, in Second Kings in terms of Naaman. When I see that God is, in fact, my God, and I can be part of God's redemption in the world, as long as I recognize that the responsibility that I have to God in the world, I'm part of it. I'm in. Uh, and and I, I think that's the entire purpose of the, of the Bible. God wants a relationship 
with everyone in the world. It didn't work regardless of your day job, regardless of your day job. Right. And, you know, if it happens that you go astray, God will welcome you back. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Mark Levin, uh, founding rabbi of Beth Torah Congregation in, uh, in Baltimore. Born in Baltimore, but in Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas. Overland Park, Kansas. It's always challenging to remember whether Kansas City is in Missouri or Kansas. I want to thank him for his insight. Uh, You can find a uh, podcast of this morning's show on chri.ca website or on iTunes for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day.